0: Good afternoon, uh, folks. Uh, We are back again with our series on uh, John Clayton's materials, Does God Exist? And if you have been with us through the first seven lessons, um, you have been exposed to some things I'm pretty confident that you've never been exposed to before. Um, I uh, had never uh, encountered some of these arguments, some of these thoughts uh, to, uh, to counter those who uh, would have us believe that uh, A. God doesn't exist. B. He didn't create um, all the worlds and the universe and, and the heavens and the earth. Uh, C. That the Bible is not uh, his word and D. The main reason is that they, that science and the Bible clash. That they do not support one another. And one of Clayton's contentions as he goes through these lessons is yes, that science and the bible have to harmonize um i guess god could have set it up so that they wouldn't and that would have required a lot more faith on our part in him but he didn't and it appears that that the bible and science and the way the world runs is the way that he created it and the way that he explains it in his word and so uh, the two are, are in harmony and part of Clayton's uh, effort here is to establish that fact and to give us evidence of that fact so that when we encounter individuals who have differing views than we do, we will have ammunition in our pocket um, that will give us a better chance of convincing them um, of these truths that we just talked about a while ago, those four or five points there. Uh, The only other thing I'll say in the way of introduction is that um, Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. And one of the points that he makes in this is that man throughout uh, recordable history uh, apparently and and maybe even what we might call more modern history has created God in his, man's, own image. That we tend to picture God um, as we picture something a little bit more elevated than just an ordinary person but in the way that we picture him as he, a, a human being or has has human being features uh, he's white he's uh as as Clayton says he's got blue eyes, white hair, white beard uh and I don't know why he would have those, uh, seeing as he is out of time and space, but that's the way man pictures God in his art, in his literature and and so forth, so we have tended to create God in our own image rather than let God reveal himself to us from his from his own reality, and so uh, with that, we'll we'll enter into uh, the uh, tape or the recording, and then we'll come back and talk about some things before we close today.
1: Welcome to our eighth presentation in the Does God Exist video series. We've been talking about how we can know there's a God, what the scientific evidence is. We've tried to show that science and faith are compatible disciplines, that they reinforce each other, that they support each other, that they exist in a symbiotic relationship, each mutually beneficial to the other. And I think you're going to see that in this presentation, perhaps more than any other. I also hope and I also believe you'll be challenged a little bit here, challenged to think. I yell, think, a lot in my public presentations. And in this particular program, I've had some funny things happen. Some years ago, I was doing this program in a church, and I did this presentation, and there was an elderly gentleman came up to me after the presentation. He was not a happy camper. His teeth were clenched and his fists were clenched and the veins were standing out in his neck. And he looked at me and he said, I want you to know something, Clayton. I don't come to church to think. Well, <laughs> that's that's unfortunate. I, I think one of our problems is we don't always have our brain engaged when we look at some of the issues about which we're talking. So I'm not challenging you to think. We've looked at the question of whether there was a beginning or not, how we know the beginning was caused, and what the properties of whatever the cause is must be. Now, in our last several presentations, we've looked at the concept of intelligence in the creation. We've looked at the evidence that there is, in fact, design, that chance is an invalid mechanism of explaining the creation that we see around us. What I want to talk about here is the nature of what the cause has to be. Now, you know, you could you could ask whether it's a God or whether it's something else. But what has to be the nature of it? And we will begin to turn our attention a little bit to the biblical concept of what God is, because I think it is so different than any other system that is out there. And some of you are going to find this to be quite a statement, but it really is true. Even though I was an atheist for the first 20 years of my life, even though my family was made up of people who did not believe in God, even though my closest friends were all people who did not believe in God, and even though my ministry has been involved for over 40 years with people who have faith problems, I have never known an atheist who knew what God is. Not who God is, what God is. I don't think I've ever met an agnostic that had a working, functional, logical understanding of this thing that we call God. (laughs) And I've met very few people who claim to be Christians who really understand what we're talking about when we talk about this thing that we call God. When I say God... To you today what are you thinking what do you visualize or do you visualize anything when you pray to god if you do pray what are you praying to is it something that looks like this you know it's kind of interesting to realize that uh, when i started looking for sources on this when i've been talking to people like this and about this almost universally they have this concept of god And you know where I got that picture? Off the front page of some Bible school literature. You see, many of us were indoctrinated at a very early age with a completely fallacious concept of God. But we see the same sort of thing in scientific publications. This was a cover of a reputable scientific journal talking about creationism. But what's the picture? And that picture appears over and over. And you say, well, it's a very famous piece of art. I understand that. But the fact still remains that it's the Caucasian, blue-eyed, white-haired, old man in the sky. And it's completely fallacious. When you take a look at religious material portraying different religious subjects, like this one on the struggle between God and Satan, what's the concept? And you say, well, that's symbolic. I understand that, but the fact of the matter is that most of the time, When we have difficulties understanding the way in which God functions in the world, our concept is rooted in concepts of this type and beliefs of this type. The atheists in their advertising demonstrate the same thing. Now, this may be a little offensive to you, but this is an ad that has been circulated by atheists over a wide spectrum of American universities and colleges and a poster and what have you. I have blacked out part of the picture. But what's the concept? Now, of course, it has political overtones, and you say, again, it's symbolic, again, no question. But the fact of the matter is, if you remember the discussion that Richard Dawkins had in our last presentation, it embodied all of these same concepts, all human characteristics. What I want to try and do in this presentation is to change your thinking. Now, some of you may think this is crazy. But if you'll stay with me, whether you're a believer in God or not, I think you will gain some understandings about what we're going to do here. So let me encourage you, don't blow me out when you get to thinking this is kind of strange. What I want to do is actually tell you a story by a man by the name of Edwin Abbott. Abbott wrote a little book. The book was called Flatland. Flatland was the story of a man who lives in a two-dimensional world. And what I mean by that is that he lives in a world that's like this sheet of paper. In the sheet of paper, we have only length and width. We have no thickness in the sheet of paper. Now, I, on the other hand, am a three-dimensional being. I have length and width and considerable thickness. Now, it's the thickness dimension that's different than flatland. You cannot get me a three-dimensional being into a two-dimensional sheet of paper you can't get me in the paper now you can draw a front view of me we have a name for that we call it a, a, a portrait but a portrait doesn't show the whole me it just shows one view of me you can draw a side view of me we have a name for that we call it a profile in the story of flatland the man in flatland is shown as you see it here as a profile but a profile is not the whole me it's just one view of me you can draw a back view of me you can draw a top view of me which in my case is four concentric circles (laughs) you got that? what do you see when you look at me from up there? Ball spot, head, shoulders, belly four circles but four circles isn't all there is to me it's just one view of me the view from up there You cannot get me, a three-dimensional being, into a two-dimensional sheet of paper. It cannot be done. Now, in the story of Flatland, the man who lives in Flatland, in a world that has only two dimensions, is visited one day by a sphere, by a ball, by a three-dimensional object. This tennis ball has length and width and thickness, X. Y, and Z. And in the story of Flatland, the sphere crosses Flatland right in the living room of the hero of the story. So what happens in Flatland? (laughs)
2: Well,
1: what happens in Flatland is that when the ball touches Flatland, a spot appears on this guy's floor out of nothing. Now, if that doesn't make sense to you, let me point something out to you. If I took this tennis ball, dipped it in red paint, and touched it to the paper, what would happen where the ball touches the paper? There'd be a spot, wouldn't there? Or if you'd like to say things mathematically, when a sphere is tangent to a plane, there's a point at the intersection. But understand something. A spot in flatland is matter. This man is made of a series of dots. That's what a line is. So the material of which he is made has come into existence out of nothing. And as he watches in amazement, the dot turns into a circle. So what has happened? Well, the sphere has sunk deeper into Flatland, And if you truncate a sphere, if you cut a slice out of the tennis ball, what do you get? You get a circle. But understand something. A circle is made up of a lot of dots. So matter has spontaneously been created out of nothing. And as the sphere sinks deeper and deeper and deeper into flatland, the circle gets larger and larger and larger. Until it's about that crap, the guy ran right out of his own living room. He gets over near the door, ready to run out of the room. But just as he gets to the door, the sphere reaches its equator, passes its equator. So what happens to the size of the circle? Yeah, of course. It becomes smaller because you're cutting it further up. But that's another violation of the laws of science. Matter energy is being destroyed. And that can't happen. Everything the man in flatland knows to be true scientifically is not working. The man in flatland doesn't believe in ghosts, but he sees one. And by the way, we'll talk about ghosts in the paranormal later on. But as the sphere goes on through, the circle becomes smaller and smaller and smaller until finally it's just a dot and then it completely disappears. The sphere has passed completely through Flatland. Matter has been completely and totally destroyed. In the top set of pictures, we have the sphere and the plane and what happens as the sphere passes through the plane. In the bottom set of pictures, we have what the man in Flatland would see. And I hope as you see that happening, you understand the relationship between the sphere, three-dimensional, and the plane, two-dimensional. Now, as the story develops, the man in Flatland starts to talk to the sphere. And the sphere talks back. And that's a weird situation because as the sound waves come up through Flatland, he hears this godlike voice come from all around him and even inside of him. And that takes getting used to but he eventually adapts to it. And so they start to talk. And, and finally, the sphere, the man in Flatland says to the sphere, tell me, what is it like to be a sphere? So the sphere thinks he knows how to do this. So he says, all right, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, I want you to draw a circle on your floor. Now, that's easy for you and me. I mean, we're, we're three-dimensional. We can take a piece of paper. We just go like that. Very easy. But to the man in Flatland, A circle is a constantly curving line that comes back where it starts and he has never seen a whole circle as you look at this diagram realize that if he's looking from left to right he sees the side of the circle facing him but he can't see the other side if he walks around to the other side then he can't see the side on the left it is completely and totally impossible for him to see a whole circle all he can see is a curving line if he measures the curvature it's constant and it eventually comes back where it starts. The only way the man in Flatland could ever see a whole circle would be to be in the middle of it. If he ever got in the middle of it, he could never get out. People in Flatland commit suicide by drawing circles around themselves that they can't get out of. Does that make sense? Some of you are saying, "Eh," some of you are saying, let me give you a three-dimensional illustration. Let's suppose I had a a 12-foot diameter stainless steel ball over here with no windows and no doors, and it's a foot thick, and somehow I put you in the middle of the sphere. Could you ever get out? Same thing. So it's dangerous to draw circles in Flatland, but after hours and hours and hours, the man in Flatland finally gets the circle drawn, and the sphere says, Boy, I sure am glad you finally got that done. Now here's what i want you to do i want you to rotate the circle see what he's thinking is that the man in flatland at least in his mind can take the circle and go like this and if you take a circle and go like this what would you get and the answer is obvious isn't it a sphere but what the guy in flatland does is that he takes a circle and he goes like this and the sphere says no 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 the other way so he goes like that and the fear says no no go the third way and the poor guy in flatland says you idiot there is no third way because in flatland there isn't is there the only thing the man in flatland can understand is the two dimensional world in which he lives it is totally and completely impossible for him to totally comprehend the true nature of the sphere. The only way he can understand the sphere, listen to this very carefully, is the way the sphere manifests itself to him in his own dimension. Now, why have I told you that little story? And why did Edwin Abbott write it? By the way, there's a sequel to that called Flatterland, which actually deals with quantum mechanics. Because, you see, when you talk about the question of cause, you're asking, what is the cause? It can't be three-dimensional. It can't even be fourth-dimensional. You can plot X against time. You can plot Y against time. You can plot... Z against time. So we usually think of time as being fourth dimensional. Whatever the cause of time and three-dimensional space is, it has to be something that's in a higher dimension than X, Y, Z, or time. Now, the important thing to understand here is that there's really no controversy about this. When we talk about string theory, supers, all of these things that relate to the question of what might be the cause of the singularity, what might be the cause of the beginning, hence, talk about dimensions beyond our own. String theory has like 11 different dimensions. Now, I just tried to point out to you the problems with understanding flatland and three-dimensional space. How would you understand fifth dimension? What would the fifth dimension be? If we have X and Y and Z, and you can plot time against those, where is the fifth dimension? Or the sixth dimension, or the seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh? Equations in mathematics suggest to us that such dimensions do exist. Bisonic theory and quantum theory says that there are 26 different dimensions. The equations suggest that. But these things aren't testable. They're not falsifiable. There's no way to go about resolving the question of the nature of those. But what about the concept of God? I'm going to use the Bible here because that's what I'm most familiar with, number one. And because I think it is most clearly stated in the biblical framework number two but there are many religious structures that have this concept in the biblical frame of reference when we look at the definitions of god look what we see we see statements like god is love we see statements like god is light god is the spirit jesus said blessed art thou simon barjona for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto these. Flesh and blood didn't do it. But my Father, who art in heaven. We see statements like, God is not a man. God is eternal. God is everlasting. God is the word. God is unseen. Every description of God in the Bible is non-physical and non-anthropomorphic, which means not like man. Now, some of you might say to that, well, I yeah, you know yeah, sometimes we see statements about the face of God or the hand of god that's true when it describes action but not when it defines god and we do the same thing we talk about the law of the law what does that mean that there's a big hand that comes out of the sky and picks you up when you do something illegal well of course not we're talking about a property of the law aren't we we talk about the face of america what do we mean that there is an actual face you can see on the ground well of course not we're talking about what people believe what they value when the Bible explains how God interacts with man, it may use accommodative language, but God is never defined in the Bible in physical terms. And what's interesting about this is that this is something we're all familiar with. Because there are many circumstances where we're facing the same type of problem. Do you realize, for example, we've never seen an atom? Nobody has ever observed an atom through their senses. When somebody says, well, I don't believe in anything unless I can perceive it through my five senses, they're not saying something that they really believe. You can't touch an atom, you can't see an atom, you can't feel an atom, you can't smell an atom, you can't taste an atom. In no way can you perceive a single atom through your senses. But nobody would deny the atomic bomb. We've never seen an electron. The morning, nobody's ever taken an electron, held it up, looked at it, smelled it, tasted it, heard it, felt it in any way, perceived it through our senses. But we have television sets and computers and microwave ovens and all kinds of wonderful things based upon what we think an electron's all about. We've never seen a photon. Nobody's ever observed a photon. We've never smelled it. We've never tasted it. We've never heard it. But we have lasers that do incredible things based upon what we think a bundle of light is about. Now, how do we do that? And and the list goes on and on. You know, quarks, neutrinos. How do we do that? Well, let me go back and take one that you all know. Somewhere back in your experience, you had, third grade probably, a teacher who convinced you about electrons, and what that teacher did was that teacher took a dead cat, rubbed it on a plastic comb, and showed you that if you rub a plastic comb on a dead cat, the plastic comb will pick up little bits of paper. Remember that? Yeah, third grade. Then you got into high school, and you did the Dirac version of the millikan drop experiment, and you demonstrated that an electron has a mass. There's one 1837th the mass of a proton that's a high school level lab now. I did it in college. And then you took the most wonderful class you ever took, physics, and you learned that an electron spins clockwise in a north magnetic field. And everything we know about electrons which allows us to have microwave ovens, to have television sets, to have computers, all the wonderful things that are part of our technology we have because we have understood the electron through its properties. When you have an entity that does not lend itself to empirical observation through your senses, the way you understand that entity is through its properties. So tell me, what are these? Yeah, they're properties, aren't they? The properties of God. The Bible is simply using what science has learned in the last few years to understand an entity, God, which does not lend itself to empirical observation through our senses by describing God's properties. This is just good science. Our question is, what was the nature of the cause at the beginning? We've demonstrated that one property is intelligence, purpose, design. The chance, the alternative, is not a reasonable suggestion. But the second property is that it must be an entity which is outside of space and time. It has to be something that is in a higher dimension than space or time. There are several proposals, superstrings, strings, brains, all kinds of suggestions from theories of science. But the other thing that fits is the biblical concept of God and also other religious systems. We'll talk about the comparisons of those systems later on. Now, what's interesting here is that if you understand this, you understand an enormous number of things about the interrelationship of God and man. In our next presentation, we'll talk about this. What is a soul? How do you know you got one? How can God hear the prayers of everybody at the same time? What sex is God? What language does God speak? What race is God? And I hope as I'm throwing those questions out, which are questions we hear frequently, you're understanding, you're realizing right away that these are anthropomorphic questions. Man has formed God in man's image. We have ascribed human characteristics to God. And that's what causes those kinds of questions to be asked. But we can understand it uniquely if we truly understand what the nature of God is. And we can also understand why an all-wise, all-powerful, all-knowing Heavenly Father would create something as dumb and as ugly as me. Why am I here? What is my purpose? That particular question is one that is unique to the concept of God. Now, I, I want to emphasize that we're pushing you hard here to think, and I understand that. For some of you, this is enjoyable, it's easy, you've done this, you know how to handle this, everything is very, very simple. But for most of us, these are new concepts, and it takes time for them to soak in. And we have a variety of materials to help you with this. We have a little booklet, which is called A Help in Understanding What God Is. You can get that booklet free of charge on our doesgodexist.org website. And we'll give you these websites here in just a minute on the screen. We have a discussion of who created God. And we'll talk about that in our next presentation. That is also available in a little booklet that's available on the website. If you do not have access to the website or if you would like a hard copy, you can contact us, either email us or write us and we will be happy to mail a copy of this booklets to you. We would also like to mention to you that we have a detailed treatment of this in the books that we have available, as well as in the presentations in other forms, uh, like a correspondence course that you can take. So we would encourage you to go to our websites, doesgodexist.org, doesgodexist.tv, or to contact us to secure these materials to continue your study. And next time we'll talk about who created God. And how we answer the questions about how God interacts with man and why we exist.
0: That concludes uh, lesson number eight. And... uh, Mr. Clayton makes a, a very important point there at the end that I think I alluded to back before we started today was this notion of some of these things are familiar to us, some of them are not, and it could be that many of them are not. Um, I was going to end with this, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start um, with this. Um, my my background is um, education, teaching um, K twelve, and then I moved into uh, higher education, uh, preparing teachers uh, to be school administrators, school leaders, and broaden that out into university leaders and uh, working not only with master's program but with doctoral program students. And early on in my uh, experience in higher education. I would tell my students, you all have worked hard all day, and these were usually night classes back then. Um, You come here to try to learn something to help you uh, prepare yourself for another job, or maybe even improve what you are doing currently um, in the job that you currently hold. Um, But I feel a very strong obligation to provide you with something that is useful for you and if I don't, if you ever come to a class and you can leave and say I didn't learn anything that I can use, you would be my friend if you would tell me that. Um, I believe that one of the most important things a teacher can do is make their students think. The story that he told briefly at the beginning uh, about the man who came up to him and says, I don't come to church uh, to think. Um, and it could be in our worship service, maybe, maybe our mind is, is uh, so focused on uh, worshiping God that uh, going through some sort of intellectual or intellectually testing process uh, is not what we're there for. However, I think our Bible classes should be stimulating. They should require people to move from possibly one point to another, to look at an issue that they are familiar with and have been familiar with for uh, maybe even a number of years and consider, well, here's another side of that, or here is a different way of looking at it. Not that it's going to change them and their view, but it might enhance their view of that concept or that belief or, or that passage, something of that sort. And so um, I tell my uh, class those of you who have been attending on Wednesday night uh, over the past two to three to four years, however long I've been teaching that class, um, I feel it's my obligation to make you think. It's my obligation to stimulate those brain cells up here and not just feed you things that you have been used to hearing uh, over the years. Um, I think it's the obligation of of a preacher, uh, possibly during the lesson, to not only engage people and get them to uh, listen to him, but to take them someplace that they haven't been. If he simply repeats and, and tells you what you already know, He hasn't done much for you other than maybe reaffirm what you already knew to be true or real. So um, I think it, it is incumbent upon all of us, those of us who share that responsibility of working through God's Word to um, not only just simply read it and say, what does it say? You know that that can be uh, a learning experience, but um, I, I think it's it's our obligation to take us uh, somewhere uh, beyond that. I don't know if you have a comment about that or not.
2: Absolutely, that's one of the things I try to do in every lesson is give you something that you can walk away from with you know new knowledge or a new application point. And if if we're not doing that, we're we're not really doing our jobs. Uh, case in point.
0: Jesus used parables. Well, why did he use parables? He could have simply just told them what he was trying to, the point he was trying to get across about uh, uh, preaching the gospel, sowing the word. Well, what does he do? He goes into a long extended uh, analogy, (coughs) a metaphor, uh, if you will, about uh, physically planting seeds in different kind of soils. Now, why would he do that? He is stimulating another side of their brain things they're already familiar with that they can take this conceptual idea and apply it to or overlay it on what they already know and it when you can do something like that it takes the learning to a deeper level and so so Jesus did that and if it's good enough for him i guess it's good enough uh, for us he, he was the master teacher and so uh, we should emulate uh, what he did in his instruction uh, one of the things that that Clayton pointed out there was this notion that that some people are hardcore evidence driven individuals i won't believe it until I can see it and i can't see God uh, i can't see Jesus so i 'm not going to believe. In them, Well, he makes a very convincing argument about protons and neutrons and electrons um, and um, photons, I think he uses also. Uh, we can't see those things. We know a little bit about their properties, but, but we can't taste, feel, uh, see, uh, hear, and, and all of those things to use our senses to give us confirmation that those things actually exist. We have to trust what we can see in their properties or in their characteristics. And if that's not a perfect analogy for God, I don't know what is. We cannot see, physically, God. Um, And he'll talk more about that. God exists outside of our flat land. No, we don't live in flat land, we live in three-dimensional land. Uh, maybe even four-dimensional land uh, because of time. But he exists outside of that. And the point he made there at the end, how in the world can God hear the prayers of all those who are praying at the same time? Well, we're limiting God by our own abilities to not be able to do that. God exists outside of our dimension and our uh, understanding of how uh, how the way things work. And so in order to be able to create what he has created here, he has to exist outside of that. He has to be able to do things that we can't in order to create us and and make make our situation uh, work. It's the old potter and clay that uh, Paul talks about. Uh, Can the clay... Say to the potter, or why did you make me, or, or or why did you make me this way? The potter is so far superior to the clay; the clay has, the clay, the clay can't even formulate the right questions. Thankfully, God has given us all of the answers that we need in His Word, and so when uh, mankind says, "Well, I'm not going to," Uh, believe anything that I, that I can't see. We can see with our mind's eye and with our intellect what God is through his characteristics and how he has revealed himself to mankind in, in the scriptures. It's not in a physical way and any time that uh, the scriptures do refer to something that we might think is physical, as he suggests, that's probably just an accommodative way of saying, um, "Here's something that you might understand, so I'm going to use this word so that that you can have maybe as much understanding about it as you can." Um, not long ago, we were talking in in class about uh, about heaven, and uh, you know, what's heaven going to be like? And uh, if you read Revelation. Uh, it's going to be blindingly mineral. <laughs> it is. Uh, it's going to have every uh, precious stone and gem uh, in it. Not only that, it's going to be a physical place, mm. and uh, we we know that it's a a spiritual realm. Um, and uh, our minds have a difficult time grasping that. But God uses things that man. Has placed a value on or will place a value on uh, in his future at the time he delivered his word um, so that they would have some sense of how grand and glorious uh, it will be. I don't think there's going to be a street of gold, a physical street of gold. I don't think that it's going to be, you know, uh, with all the waters and the gemstones and the sapphires and the rubies. It could. I could be totally wrong. But I'm thinking this is a spiritual realm, and that's what he has as uh, God is a spirit, and so he lives in a in a spiritual realm if if he lives at all and that, that word may not even have a uh, have a meaning in in the spiritual world uh, his spiritual world so um, we as human beings need to get off the notion as Clayton suggests that that we can picture God, we can um, pinpoint what God, um, who God is, and what He is like, because we can create in our mind <coughs> something that to, to latch onto. And um, God is not a physical being, and and we can only know Him as He manifests Himself in our world and our. Dimensions um, Moses, Abraham, Noah, others who spoke uh, directly to God um, and and dealt with him in a one on one verbal uh, uh, interaction. Um, I don't know what they were talking to, maybe they were hearing a voice, maybe God represented himself. Um, to mankind in the form of an angel we have examples of that uh, in in the Old Testament um, that resembled man and so uh, when when God interacts with man when God makes himself knowable to man it's usually through his actions um, rather than any kind of physical um, presentation of himself.
2: Maybe you're thinking, why that? Why is it such a big deal? You know, why are we spend so much time talking about getting rid of the the old man with the long white hair and the pearly teeth, the blue eyes. Why is that such a a bad representation of God? Well, it's because that representation puts a hurdle in your way of actually understanding yeah. who He has represented Himself as in Scripture. Um, so when you get some, it's it's kind of like when you. Uh, when you when you think some when you're having a conversation with somebody and you think they're going to say this thing you know the next words out their mouth you think you know what they're going to say what do you hear you hear exactly what you think you're going what what you think they're going to say whether they said that thing or something else and, and that's kind of the, what the roadblock we run into with this idea of, well this is who God isn't that's not that's not how He represented Himself in Scripture uh, although some of that like we say is accommodative language. He yeah. is much bigger, much more grand, much more in-depth. <laughs> the picture's broader than
0: that. And and uh, we can be forgiven yeah, absolutely. of that because it is natural yeah. for us to frame things in our own um, understanding, our own world. Um, and as we just said, Jesus framed difficult spiritual concepts... In more humane and more human uh, ways, so that they could have a chance to understand uh, some of those concepts. Uh, uh, the gospel, um, uh, the, the word, uh, heaven, uh, the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, things, things of that nature are difficult concepts because they take us outside our realm of familiarity. And so, um, anytime. We can uh, latch on to or experience something that helps us better understand that which we didn't understand before um, as long as it's accurate <laughs> then then uh, it's it has enhanced our ability to understand uh, as limited as we are as human beings uh, what God is um, the uh, point that he made there. Um, about intelligence, um, what what is it that created um, the worlds, um, the heavens and the earth. He has done an extremely good job uh, in the setup lessons probably one through uh, five and, and he will continue to re-emphasize some of those points about, about why it, it took a cause for it to begin because it did have a beginning, and he's done a very good job showing us that. And like I've said, if if uh, if I had to sit down and go back and walk somebody through that, I'm I could hit some highlights, but uh, his arguments are are deep, and his arguments are thorough. Um, and it's going to take us uh, some some effort to go back and prepare ourselves to talk to others about some of these concepts because. Um, he is taking lay people like us, who are not scientists, who are not uh, physicists, uh, who don't talk on a regular basis about these theories and, and uh, dimensions and things of that sort, and he's trying to boil it down at least into something that we can not only latch onto and believe, but we can use when we do uh, talk with others. One point that he uh, uh, makes, or is made in our in our uh, in our questions, is um, if if we truly understand uh, what God is, and if we can wrap our hands around those things that uh, we see the Scripture, and he begins to use Scripture here finally, which I know some of us will are saying, well, hallelujah, it's about time. But he has his purposes for not using them, as he has explained. This notion that God is love, God is light, God is spirit, um, and that list of of passages that he that he put there. Um, if we understand what God is based on how he is presented to us in Scripture, then it makes you wonder why we as human beings are so susceptible to sin. And I'm convinced, uh, you know, from my own experiences and 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 looking around at others, is that um, this life has a way of consuming us. It has a way of pushing itself into our uh, existence, into our thoughts. Um, more regularly than God pushes himself into our thoughts Or we pursue thoughts about God And it's something that, that, that I've tried in our classes to stress And I know Chris has stressed it from, from the pulpit And in his classes as well That um, think on these things Goodness, justice, mercy all of those things that will make us better individuals, because when we think on them enough, we will become them. I was uh, talking to my uh, my doctoral students, uh, I think yesterday, um, online in a discussion board, and uh, we were talking about uh, self self improvement and motivation to 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 be what we can become as human beings and so forth. Um, motivational theory, and I said it seems to me that Ben Franklin at one point in his life decided he was going to improve himself and he picked out eight, ten, fourteen characteristics and some of those are whatever is true, whatever is beautiful, whatever is is, uh, is good, honest, uh, you know, all of those things. What he decided to do was take uh, a week, I believe, at a time and take one of those and do everything he could to improve himself with regard to that particular feature or that particular characteristic. Maybe he did it as long as he felt like he you know, didn't have, uh, had more to grow in that area and then move on to the other one. It's been a long time since I have read anything about that. But, but how noble is that? How how focused is that to consciously say I am going to improve me and the way I'm going to do that is to take the characteristics that God says in his word that he wants me to be and I am going to and you could focus on more than one at a time but I think he felt if he fully devoted himself to one of those over a particular period, he would experience more growth than maybe watering himself down by, by working on three or four at a time. Not only that, but in order to even know what God expects of us, we have to know what's in His Word. And we have, we've said it before, and we'll say it again. We're going to be held accountable on the Day of Judgment For how we have handled his word Define handled however you want But you've got to know it before you can handle it And um, I think too many of us think we know the Bible In uh, past years um, I have handed out a test that I created and some of you are familiar with that test. And it, it, what I did was, I just went through the Bible, started at the beginning in Genesis, and, and picked out a question here and there. And um, you could answer the question on three levels. If it was a quote, who said it? What was the circumstance? Just briefly, what was the circumstance? And then if you could tell me where that passage from, that was really on a, a really high level. And we, I had like 50 or 60 questions from the Old Testament and 40, uh, 45, whatever it was in the New Testament. A hundred test, 100 question test. And I said, I don't want to know your score, but I want you to know your score. And if you cannot go through this test and come out with a feeling that I know my Bible fairly well and believe me, that test has not been uh, subjected to any kind of reliability or validity studies or anything like that. To even suggest that it would be a, a representative test of biblical knowledge. It was just a random question here and there. Things that jumped out at me off of the pages of my Bible that I've got underlined. And um, it's, it's an interesting experience when someone starts actually asking you questions about your knowledge of the Bible. And when you encounter others that ask you about your faith, I'm hoping that one of the things you say up front is, number one, I believe in the Bible. I believe that the Bible is God's Word. I believe that the Bible was given to mankind through inspiration from God into the individuals who would be Delivering that word, not only in in word, but also in the written word. Um, And I'd be happy to have you ask me a question, any question, about what is in the Bible. And see if I can at least give you a halfway decent answer um, concerning that question or that topic. And if you don't have the confidence, that, that kind of confidence, in your Bible knowledge, and you have been a Christian for a number of years, there's a big W lying out there called, why? Why can you not? And then the next question is, what are you going to do about it? Some people say, well, it's too late i uh, you know i you know i can't learn oh can't teach an old dog new tricks yeah I can't go back and learn homer haley um was uh, was an outstanding preacher and as far as i know uh individual he was an icon in in the church back in the forties fifties sixties and um he was conducting a meeting one time, and um Homer was known for his ability to quote entire chapters of the Bible at random you know whenever he was called upon he would have, at, have an additional thought that he wanted to add in the middle of the sermon and he would be able to quote that passage not one that he had recently looked at in preparation for that lesson but he had preached for a number of years and, and uh, the woman uh, said oh brother Haley I sure wish I could quote the Bible the way you do <laughs> and he looked at her and he said are you willing to sacrifice your life learning it the way I have? And you go. I don't know what her response was, <laughs> but but you but you but you can imagine. Um, it takes effort, and I'll just mention this, and we'll 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 finish up here unless Chris has something else to say, um, which applies to this application of effort. Malcolm Gladwell uh, wrote a book called Outliers. I think is the name of the book. And in that book he talks about uh, how does someone achieve the heights that they achieve in whatever endeavor uh, they are pursuing. And he talked about the Beatles, um, how there were numerous bands that had uh, commensurate talent talent that those, those young men had, but there was a nightclub uh, in Liverpool if I remember correctly, that would go for like 24 hours a day and different bands would come in and different groups of people. People would get off from their factory work and and it was just continual music. And they were able to play publicly as much as they wanted, as often as they wanted. Now, not every band, every band gets that opportunity. He talked about Michael Jordan. He talked about uh, Bill Gates' um, and, and, and here is what he came up with. He says, in order for people to achieve mastery or excellence or whatever he called it, he says they have to have some innate abilities. For to achieve at that level, you you can't be the average person. No matter what you do, you're not going to get to that grand level. You have to have um, the desire to pursue that high level and we could apply it for each of us on our own level without the desire we're not going to have the commitment to it and the commitment is the third thing that you have to have if you're not committed to learning more about God's word you won't or your growth will be so small as not to be discernible and the last one uh, of Gladwell's conditions, if I remember correctly, was the right circumstances. If you take all four of those: the innate ability, the desire, the commitment. Not only matched with the you know you have you have the desire, but you have the commitment to that desire over a long period of time. Oh, and there's one feature: ten thousand hours. Ten thousand hours. I'm assuming Homer Haley had spent 10,000 hours memorizing his Bible. You don't have to memorize your Bible, but you do need to know it. You do need to study it. And then there is that, that last one, the circumstances. Every home has a Bible. Every computer has a Bible. The Internet has 14 million Bibles. The circumstances are there. The conditions are there. We have innate abilities to learn. And so it's our, it's our uh, interest in doing it, our enthusiasm for it, and our commitment to it. And without that, um, we won't grow. And we have commands to grow. And those commands are just as strong as don't sin. And the consequences? I don't know. Not up to me. It'll be up to God. You have anything to add? And I, I agree. T- I took us up to our time limit here.
2: <clears throat> I agree. Let's make a commitment to learn.
0: Okay. Uh, next week he's going to talk a little bit more about God, I believe. I can't remember what the name of the uh, the session is, but um, um, it's questions about God, I think, or something like that. Uh, so we'll see you all next week.